Well, uh, Dave King and I worked on this message together, and if you were here last week, you know I shared a story at the beginning of the message. Dave has a, a story of uh, something similar, and so since we worked on the message together, I wanted to ask Dave to come up and share his, uh, his story. Come on up, Dave. Thanks, man. Last week, Van talked about his adventure as a forest firefighter. Some of you heard that story last week. And he was at, um, fighting fires at 17, but I have been fighting fires longer than that because I started in fifth grade. Seriously, I started in fifth grade. I went to the local department store and bought a, a fireman's badge and put it on. My best friend Steve and I went around town, and we had actually formed the Jackson, Kentucky Fire Patrol. And we would walk down each street, and as we went each street, we would look at the buildings. Is there any smoke coming from there? No, that looks good. Check. This one looks good. Then we would put out our our notebooks. We carried notebooks to look for safety violations. So you'd walk down the street and say, hey, a piece of paper, Steve, did you see that? Yes, got it. Writing it down, safety violation, especially someone threw a cigarette on it. Big fire, be terrible. The other safety violations, we look, walk down the street, young children running on uneven sidewalks, safety violation, write that down. Or a cat too near a tree, uh, safety violation, thing's going to go up a tree and be stuck up there, firemen will be in a dangerous situation. Safety violation. So we wrote down all these safety violations, but we never did anything with them. We just wrote them down just to have them. Well, my friend Steve went on to become a volunteer fireman. And throughout the years, up until 20, 25 years of age, he served as a volunteer fireman. I never took the training. I just was a volunteer fireman wannabe. Until one night when I was 17, Steve and I were coming back from Lexington, Kentucky into Jackson. And Steve had this really cool red fire. It was a pickup that looked like a fire truck. Of course, he's going to have a red truck because he's a fireman. So we're rolling into town and the call came in. There's a mobile home fire at the edge of Jackson. Steve said, Dave, we're rolling. So he puts on the red light on top of his truck, and we're driving in. We get to the edge of town, and there's a mobile home fire. Thing is in flames, and remember, it's a volunteer fire department. So the truck pulls in, but there's only four, three or four of us to fight the fire because the rest had not got there. So Steve says, Dave, this is your chance. So he hands me the helmet. I get up on the truck, and I grab the back of the hose, and I'm standing there like this behind someone. And in a matter of moments... The mobile home fire is completely out, and the home is saved. Applause, applause. Okay, so for those of you last week that heard Van's story, we're going to vote. I know some of you really want to vote. For those of you that thought Van's experience was much better than mine, raise your hand. Van, the brave fireman, go ahead. Okay. How about Dave, the braver fireman? All right, Van, it's over to you. I'll have to be careful giving Dave the microphone, I think, in the future. (laughs) If you're here last week, you know, the whole point of the illustration that I shared and that Dave just shared as well had to do with the, uh, the passion to be at the core of the action, to be where the fire was hottest, 
to be where it was the most dangerous, to uh, just to experience something that was bigger than me. It was bigger than Dave. I mean, that's why he wanted to be a fire marshal. There, there's, a, there's something God's built into us that longs for more. We long for more. We want more. We want to be in the presence of something so great that we, we can't comprehend it. We all long for that. And what my longing was, as I, as I pressed into the whole fire, uh, forest fire crew and Dave too, really the longing is to be in God's presence. I didn't realize it at the time and didn't really understand it fully even after I became a Christian for years. But it is to be in God's presence because that longing to be in something great is only satisfied when we're in God's presence. All of us have had desires. All of us have had longings and some of them are fulfilled. And when we experience the actual thing that we've been longing for, then we have to ask ourselves, well, was it actually fulfilling? When I really got that new car or I got the job that I really hoped for or the girl that I just was dying to ask out finally said yes, was that really fulfilling and satisfying to our hearts? And I think the, the, the answer to that will almost always be, if we're honest, the answer will be no, it wasn't. And that's because we're designed for something more. We're designed to worship. We are designed to worship. We find our greatest fulfillment in our existence as human beings in those moments when we are most clear, clearly engaged in worship. That's the passion of our hearts. That's what we are created for. And that's why we're here today. The fullest expression of human life is found in the act of worship. When I see him, when I see who I am, as we just read, I'm a son of the living God. When I recognize that, when you recognize that, and we begin to, our eyes, we begin to see who he is, what else can we do other than worship him? And what greater delight and joy and fulfillment in life is there than that type of worship? See, that's what God designed us for because worship is what actually changes us into, his, into the likeness of his son, Jesus. We were created in the image of God. That We lost that. Jesus came to win it back for us. We received Jesus. We're changed inside. Freeborn sons and daughters of the living God. But there's, there's, there's still this clouding of our eyes. There's still this inability to see fully as heaven sees. And so as we worship, as we just focus on him, and we're giving our hearts and our minds and our bodies and our lives and everything we are and everything we have, we're laying it out before him. In that moment, we receive revelation from God to understand more fully and clearly who he is. And as we see him, we become like him. First John says that when Jesus returns, we'll see him fully as he is, and then we will be fully changed into his likeness in an instant of time. But Paul said in 2 Corinthians that as we see more and more of him, we grow a step at a time. We become more and more 
in line with the life of Jesus. It says we grow from glory to glory to glory. And so having Christ in us is the hope of glory. And it's worship. That when I worship and the Holy Spirit is opening my mind and I'm seeing Jesus and I'm seeing from heaven's perspective and I'm beginning to recognize the true incredible worth of Jesus. As that happens, then there's, it's just like something in me that is just being drawn into him and, and I become more like him. And so we've been talking about uh, the Freedom Project and focused on the Freedom Project uh, for the last oh, eight weeks. This is the eighth week. We had, this is the sixth message. And we had two weeks of uh, all worship weekends and worship throughout the middle of the week. Wasn't that awesome? That wasn't fantastic. Yeah, man. God's blessed us here with uh, worship leaders that are anointed by the Holy Spirit. Many, many anointed worship leaders. And we're so thankful for them. Because they really do. They usher us into the presence of God. They kind of pave the way for that to happen. But um, today what we're going to do is conclude this series. We're going to focus on uh, summing some things up and what we believe is is the next step God has for us, how God's spoken to us as leaders about the, the next step for us as a church. This year, the Freedom Project was called Freedom Project, The Next Step. And that's because last year, we did a Freedom Project where we ended up giving over $100,000 away to three different ministries totally outside ourselves. And that was a wonderful thing. And, and we did that in order for us all to see that we can do it. And, and, and in that, to gain some deeper insight into heaven's priorities and into heaven's ways and step more into the image of Christ by that. This year we really felt led that the focus was on us. Last year, the focus, although we gave outwardly, really, the focus was on us. It was on our growth. It was on us seeing things differently. It was on us maturing. It was on us walking in the freedom that Jesus has given us. And you know, we don't gain freedom by what we do. We don't gain freedom by giving. I think some people might have misunderstood that last year. We might have presented it maybe not as accurately as we needed to. But you don't gain freedom by giving a big gift to God or by praying and fasting for two weeks. You don't gain freedom that way. You don't gain freedom by serving or by worshiping for hours on end. What we do is we begin to walk more in the freedom we have. See, Jesus is the one who, got, who set us free. He did everything for our freedom. We don't add to that. Freedom is here. It's just that there's so much stuff in this world that clouds our eyes that we don't see it. And because we don't see it, we don't walk into it. And we don't have faith and, and we get intimidated, as I was sharing a moment or two ago. And we're afraid to take the risk that we need to take to walk into the freedom. See, the freedom is here. Uh, it's like this. It's like, think of a shower, Okay, shower's blasting, nice hot water right there, and I'm st- it's, it's right there, and I'm standing right over here. And I'm looking the wrong direction, and I'm just thinking, oh man, I just need a shower. Oh God, give me, give me some nice, a nice hot shower. I just need refreshing. Oh God, give me that, give me that, give me that. And I'm, and I, and I'm not looking the right direction, my vision's clouded, or I see it, and I just don't step into it. You know the mistake a lot of people make? 
they say, oh, well, if God wants to give me a shower, he can do that. And so I'm just going to sit here. I'm not going to go for prayer. I'm not going to take any steps or actions that would challenge my faith or my risk level. I'm just, I'm just going to trust that if God wants to heal me, he can heal me in the back of the church as well as at the front of the church being prayed for. And then that, that creates an apathetic attitude within us. But what we need to do is to realize the freedom is there. It's just like the shower is there. All I have to do is just step into it. Just walk into it. I don't, I don't earn it. I don't do anything. Like stepping into it isn't earning it, okay? That's not earning it. What that's called is what? Faith. That's faith. Might be risk. Faith and risk. Taking a step takes risk. And we spell faith, R-I-S-K here. You remember that? How many knew that? How do we spell faith? R-I-S-K. Again, let's, how do we spell faith? R-I-S-K. Faith takes risk. As I exercise faith and I take risk, something happens that my eyes are clear. I see heaven more clearly. I see God's work more clearly. I see the freedom more clearly. And therefore, I experience it more fully. Does that make sense? And so, as we're in this freedom project, our next step this year, we felt the next step was for us just to, to begin to focus on worship and giving as an act. Last year, we focused on giving to a compelling need. That's a good thing. Well, God led us to do that. This year, we're focused on giving as an act of worship. Giving as an act of worship. And the, the core verse we've looked at, I, I want to read it to you quickly and then we'll move on, but 3 John 1, 2, uh, the writer there, John, he says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Okay, my soul prospers when it listens to that deep inner part of me, my spirit, and my spirit is always saying, let's go worship. Oh, I'm tired. I was up late last night. No, no, let's go worship. Let's go worship. Let's focus on God. Let's serve God. Let's love Jesus. And as, and as, as that happens, and as I become more and more of a full life worshiper where I'm saying, God, everything is yours. Everything. My mind, my body, my spirit, my soul, my heart, my life, everything is yours. And everything that is produced through my mind and my body, my life, that's yours too. It's all yours. And we lay that all before God in worship. That's, that's the next step God's calling us to because that's when we live with a prosperous soul. And it's the prosperous soul that then as we walk with prosperity of soul, that then begins to show up in, in the outer levels as well. That doesn't mean that everything's going to go right in life or that we're suddenly going to you know, win the lottery or anything. It doesn't mean that at all. But it means that my, the prosperity of my soul, inner part, inner life, and the peace and the joy that I gain, it just permeates everything else in my life. And we do see blessings come. We do see a greater sense of, of walking in the freedom that Jesus has already given us. So four motivations to give. I want to review this real briefly with you, okay? Uh, if, you're, if you were here last week, we talked about this. But the first motivation is to give to a compelling need. You, uh, the, you know, we see something like the video we saw, and we say, I want to help those families. That's a compelling need. 
I mean, that moves my heart. I hope it moves your heart. How can we see people suffer without our hearts being moved? We're created in the image of God. He's compassionate. His son Jesus has come into us and remade us and, and brought that all to life. How can we not feel compassion when we see compelling needs? We should. But as an ongoing motivation, there are times that compelling need will fail us because we will come to a point where we th- that compelling need is no longer as compelling any longer in our minds. Or it... Um, well, the, the, the whole idea that even an unbeliever is created in the image of God, and they respond to compelling needs too. And so it's, it's, not the, it's not the highest level of motivation for giving. It's a strong motivation, and, and when it's done to honor God, it honors God. But the second level would be a compelling vision. And so many companies and individuals and church bodies spend so much time on the presentation of their vision to make it as compelling a presentation as possible. And I think the danger with that is that we can be compelled by the presentation rather than by the vision itself. Doesn't mean it doesn't need to be clear and, and uh, communicated well, but a compelling vision, if it's God's vision, we all, you know, great, but we all want to be part of something bigger. And so there are people that respond to the presentation of a compelling vision without really responding to the heart of the vision itself. And so while it's a good motivation, there are some downsides to it, uh, or, or at least it falls short, let's put it that way. And then thankfulness for blessings. That, that's, a, that's a motivation. When you know, my child was sick, now they're well. Never thought we were going to have children, now we have three. I mean, those are things to be thankful for. You know, I lost my job, God provided a new job. That's something to be thankful for. And so often, that can be a motivation for worship and for giving. And when we're talking about giving, I just want to get it, I just want to recognize that giving and worship are, they're just like that. It's not like you have worship and then, well, giving too. Yeah, worship, yeah, we have to give. No, worship and giving go just like that, hand in hand. And giving is worship when it's done rightly. And the highest motivation, the most significant motivation to give is very simple. It's simply because he is worthy. It's simply because he is worthy. He is worthy of our entire lives and our entire beings. He's worthy of us coming together and spending significant amount of time just singing songs to him. He's worthy of me at times stepping out of my seat and coming to the front and not caring about what anybody else thinks because it's about him, it's not about me. He is worthy of us taking time in our days to pull aside, to pull away and just to say, Jesus, I love you. You know, to plug a worship uh, song in or, or just to worship and just say, Jesus, I love you. I love you. I want to know you better. He's worthy of that. He's worthy of our entire lives and our entire being and our full existence. And he's worthy as well of giving because 
when we worship, it is spirit, mind, soul, body, everything. What, what, my, what I produce, everything. What has what, what come into under my influence, everything. It's all for him. And that's where giving is just, is just a step of worship. It's a part of worship. Now, there's a great illustration of this, of worshiping him because of his beauty and his majesty and his grandeur and his love and his goodness and his value. You know, worship, the word worship means worth-ship. That the English word comes from what you value. How, how, how highly do I hold God in estimation? How, how high is his worth to me? And the truth is, because we're created to worship, we have that longing in our hearts, we're all going to worship something. We're all going to worship something. And whatever we worship, we become. That's the, see, that's the law of the heart that God's designed us with. What we worship, we become. And so we worship him. And as we worship him, we become more like his son, Jesus. That's how he's designed. That's what he wants. And what could be greater than to be like Jesus? Who doesn't want to be like Jesus? I mean, other than the cross and all of that part. Yeah, I mean, no one's going to say yes. I mean, but actually, Jesus said, no, if you want to be my follower, you do have to be willing to take up your cross and follow me. And you know what he was saying when he said that? He was saying, being like me is so powerful, so wonderful, and so magnificent that it so far outweighs whatever cross you have to bear to get there that it's well worth it. Does that make sense? Because he's so good. He's so beautiful. There's this wonderful illustration of this in the New Testament. Jesus, uh, this, uh, this occurs when Jesus was towards the end of his life, the end of his ministry. He keeps telling his, his disciples, his apostles, he's, he's saying, yeah, they're going to kill me. We're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. I'm going to die. Uh, he said this several times to them. And these guys don't get it. They just don't get it. Their minds are so locked into thinking, this is the Messiah. He is going to come. He is going to conquer everybody. He's going to put the Romans down. Look, the guy can raise the dead. He goes out into a stormy sea, and he tells the water to stop. He tells the storm to stop, and it stops dead right at that instant. I mean, why would anybody think that a guy that had power like that was going to be killed? So they couldn't wrap their minds around it. They couldn't grasp it. And so they're just, they're kind of ignoring that. There's a woman who may have understood it. It's a woman who may have grasped it. I know there's so many times my wife gets things I don't get. I mean, it's as simple as, where is the ketchup? You know, like I spent five minutes looking through the refrigerator for the ketchup, and I cannot find it. And she knows, oh, it's right there. You looked at it 12 times. And I don't know why that is. But uh, in this story, I think, I, I suspect maybe, I'm not sure, it doesn't, the text doesn't tell us this, okay? But maybe she, maybe she had some insight into this that these guys had missed. But here's the story, okay? Just a few days away from Jesus' crucifixion, they leave Jerusalem. They go out to this little town village called Bethany, which is like two miles outside Jerusalem. And um, it says, while Jesus was in Bethany, this is Matthew 26, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, Simon, a man uh, known as a leper, uh, I assume this is someone, one of the lepers Jesus had healed, a woman came to him 
with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, and she poured on his head, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Now another gospel says they, were, they weren't just saying this to themselves. They were going after this woman. They were looking at her saying, what? What have you done? What are you thinking? And they're, they're, ra- they're really railing on her personally. And so it goes on. It says, aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? In other words, get off her case. What's wrong with you guys? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you always have with you, but you'll not always have me. When Jesus said that statement, he wasn't saying that we should never feed the poor, in fact, or, or that they are of less value or anything like. He was saying this, that, uh, that, in fact, the apostles probably had seen him feeding the poor for three years, and that's probably part of their thinking. They're probably thinking, well, Jesus wouldn't want this. Jesus would want us to sell that and feed the poor. But they're, they're, they're seeing it from man's perspective and not heaven's. And that's what Jesus is bringing into alignment here. He's saying, you'll not always have me here, not in this way, not on this eve of my, of my uh, humiliation and my crucifixion, not after three years with me day and night, becoming best friends, loving, ministering to each other, caring. You, you won't have me here like this. Now, we have him here now, okay? I say that because I want to make sure you know he is here. He, when, the, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, Jesus, as Lord of the church, exists in the church and in us. But as his, in his state of humiliation at this moment, we won't have any more chances with him on earth. And so he goes on to say, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, just a few simple points. Um, Perfume, uh, it was a very expensive perfume. The alabaster jar itself would have been expensive. It was probably something she broke open, uh, probably something that was sealed uh, at the top. And it, it could, some commentators theorize that it could have been her inheritance, it could have been her dowry, it could have been what her dead husband left her for her to live on for the rest of her life. But it was the equivalent, they say, of at least a year's wages, maybe more than that. So think about this for just a moment. How much do you make in a year? One whole year's wages. Okay, that's what she did. She comes in and she pours it on his head. Now, some people might be stuck on that idea. I mean, how many of you would like someone to come by and um, it wouldn't have been this much, okay? It would have been just probably an ounce or less. I don't know. How, how, anybody a taker for us to come and just pour this on top of your head right now? Would that be a nice thing? I don't think so. Um, but in that culture, you remember they didn't have showers, and so, I mean, they didn't have, like, places to stop and clean up. And, and I wonder, according to our standards, how much we would have liked actually walking around with this crowd. It might have been, yeah. But um, pouring, pouring perfume on someone's head was, you know, just a good thing to do. But it also represented anointing. In the Old Testament, they did, when they anointed 
uh, priests and prophets, they would pour a, just oil and it would drip down. And, and it was representative of God's presence coming on them. And so this had that representation as well. But uh, they're, they're reclining because that's how they ate, low table, down by the floor, and they all laid down and rested on one elbow and ate with the other arm. But notice this, he says, and she's done a beautiful thing to me. That's how Jesus said that. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. Do you have anybody you just love and you admire and you want, you want, you would just, if, if they would say to you, wow, what you did to me for me was beautiful. What would that do to your heart? I think of my wife's father, my father-in-law. And at any time he would, he would show thankfulness. And he was a man, had a man, had a great servant's heart and just a wonderful person. But he would be somebody I always wanted to please. And there are others too, but that when they say to me, wow, good job. That's wonderful. Thank you. That's just, I mean, it just rocks your heart. To say it blesses you is, that the words, words fail because of what it does to your heart. And here Jesus is saying, no, she's done a beautiful thing to me. Isn't that awesome? I mean, don't you want, I want Jesus to say that what I did was a beautiful thing to him. I want him to say, wow, that, that, that was beautiful. Thank you. That was awesome what you did. And so she's, she's blessed him with this. And now the disciples are, well, it was a prophetic act, whether she knew it or not. If she got it, if she heard when all those other guys weren't hearing, if she knew Jesus was dying, then it was an intentional prophetic act on her part. If not, then it was just a prophetic act looking forward to his burial. But the disciples, they don't get it. All they're thinking of is this has no practical impact. This sacrifice, this offering, this act of worship, this pouring out of one year's salary on Jesus has no practical impact. Therefore, it must be wasteful. Now, to them, it was a waste. And that's entirely because they were looking at it through human eyes. They were looking at it from a human perspective. They needed to see this from heaven's perspective. I think that's what she was doing. She was seeing this all from, she knew Jesus was worth this. She knew he was. And she knew that this was an incredible act of worship that he was worthy of, even though it had no practical impact. And it's, but, but it's such a beautiful, wonderful thing that Jesus says, wherever the gospel's preached, this woman's story is going to be told. He never says that anywhere else, but here he does. And, and I, you ask, well, why is that? It is because this illustrates worship better than any other, any other story you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. This illustrates worship because he is worthy. Worship because he is worthy. Not worship because, oh, I really like that song. Not worship because, well, boy, I'm, I'm really thankful that God did this for me last week because sometimes what that becomes is God didn't do anything for me this week and so I can't worship quite the same. You get what I'm saying? I'm not saying that that's a bad motivation. I'm just saying it falls short. 
This illustrates worship because he is worthy, his true worth. And what happens is, as we engage in worship, and to whatever level, let's, say, let's just make this up and say there's a scale of 1 to 10. And let's say I enter into a genuine level 2 worship. Do you know what happens at that moment? I get more insight from heaven. I begin to see things from heaven's perspective at a level 2 level, and I'm, then I'm hungry. And I, oh, I want more of this. I want more. And, 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 I, and I gain more. And I gain more. And, and it's not, I'm not gaining anything other than having my eyes open to see from heaven's perspective and to see what Jesus has already done for me and to see the, the worth that he has. And then, then it, th- this whole worship that is worship just because he is worthy, it all just uh, flows with that. So uh, giving is worship. That's, that's what we've got to get. That's what we've got to get. Giving financially is worship because Jesus said you can't love God in money, one or the other. We're going to love one, we're going to love the other. And if I'm saying, well, God, all God cares about is my heart, so he doesn't care about my money, guess what? Guess what that means? I'm just making an excuse to love money. That's, that's I mean, really, I don't, that's, that's basically what that is. All God cares about is my heart. He doesn't care what I do with my body. He doesn't care if I sleep with my boyfriend or my girlfriend or if I take drugs or whatever because he, he knows my heart. You know what that is? That's an excuse to do what I want to do rather than to say, Jesus, you're worth it all. I'm yours. My body's yours. My heart's yours. My mind's yours. Everything is yours. My wallet's yours. Everything is yours. It's all yours. And I'm not, I'm not going to play any games like that about you just caring about my heart. I'm just going to lay it out before you. And, you know, in those areas that we fall short in, you know, as we're pressing into him and want to know him, they're all covered by the blood of Jesus. It's not like we, we don't have to live with guilt or shame or anything like that. There's freedom. But it's all worship. That's what we saw in the Old Testament story with Hezekiah. After they spent their two weeks of worship, Hezekiah said, hey, remember, as a nation of worshipers, one of the things that we are called to is to be givers. That's what he did. He just stood up and he said, okay, we have worshiped. We've returned to, be, to recognize we are the people of God. We are worshipers and who our God is. And I remind you now, part of that worship is giving. And it says they gave so much that there were heaps and heaps and mainly that was an agricultural culture, so they're bringing, they're bringing uh, goods. You know, our culture isn't agricultural. We bring money because that's what we have. That's what we make is money. They made goods, and so they brought their goods, so much so that they had to build storehouses onto the temple. Now, that tells me they weren't giving to a compelling need. They were giving because they wanted to worship and because he's worthy. And so we give because he's worthy. When, and when we give because he's worthy, I mean, what would that look like? It, there's, I, I think, first fruits. Do you know the, the, the amazing thing about a first fruits offering is you don't know if there's going to be a second fruit or not. <laughs> what if the locusts come? What if there's a drought? What if there's a flood? You don't know. Think of it like this. Most of us probably get paid on a monthly basis, maybe some bi-weekly. But think on, uh, what, what if you got paid weekly? 
And at the beginning of every month, you give a first fruits offering. And you say, all right, out of this first paycheck, I'm going to give 10% of my money for the month. And so let's say I make $1,000 a month. I'm just pulling that number out so it's easy to to understand. So that first paycheck, I get $250. Well, I'm going to give 10% of the 1,000. So I'm going to give $100. So do you follow what I'm saying? It's risk. And I'm not saying that we all need to do it that way. I, I, I give when I get paid. That's what I've always done. One of the most enlivening periods in my life was when I had like three or four jobs at the church. I was roofing and I was substitute teaching at two or three different school systems. And so I was getting checks all the time, you know, for two days of subbing last month or, or for three days of roofing two weeks ago. And I never knew when they were coming, but what we decided was every time we get one, as soon as we carry it in from the mailbox, we're going to sit down, we're going to write out a check for 10% of that right there, right then. Because if I don't, it'll just get absorbed into the general fund and then I don't know where it is and then it fills, you know what I mean? So we'll give in a first fruits way, which makes it a priority. Um, and that was enlivening for me to do that. There was joy in it. It was just a wonderful thing to say, I'm trusting you, God. Yeah, we're going to trust you. We're going to do this. It's crazy, but we're going to do it. And it's regular and it's planned. It's joyful. It's sacrificial. Um, King David at one point, uh, he was going to make an offering and someone offered to give him what he needed to make that offering. And David said, no, no, no. He said, I'm not going to give an offering to the Lord that costs me nothing. He says, if I'm giving as worship, then it's got to cost me something. It's got to come from me. And so it would be sacrificial. It will miss it, in other words. And then would give as an act of worship. And this is a very, this is a controversial point um, some, you know, you just hear on this, where do you give? Well, I give wherever God tells me to. Well, that's great. But here's, here's what I think, okay? I think if giving is worship, and if there's anything I want us to get out of these eight weeks, I want us to get that. Giving is worship. Then I'm going to give where I worship as an act of worship. Some people, someone might say, well, I worship in the woods. Uh, we're preparing for this message, and uh, talking it through, and Tyler said, well, first, I want to see a video of that. What does that look like? And then second, I suppose if that's really, truly what you're claiming and say and believe and all of that, then take your 10% of your income or your offering out and stick it in a knot hole in a tree somewhere. I mean, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? But uh, I don't worship in the woods. I mean, I do if I'm in the woods, but here's where I come. Here's God's people. You know, this, uh, this is God's people. And the New Testament says that we are God's temple. It says that each one of us are individually temples of the living God. And it says then, don't you know that you, and it was plural, you, the whole church body, you're a temple of the living God. So where I worship, I'm going to give there as an act of worship. And then that, that cuts out this whole idea of compelling needs. And then, we, then churches don't, I mean, then it's not a matter of, well, we need money for this, or we need money for that, because it's just all that's taken care of, and there's no need to bring out compelling needs, unless we have someone like Shanty come by, and then we say, wow, do you want to give to that? Let's give to that. But giving as an act of worship is just an incredible thing. It frees our hearts, enables us to walk in the freedom of our hearts. 
And so um, here's the thing. Uh, I got a prophetic word from the Lord several years ago, either 2004 or 2005. And we were in the YMCA. It was packed kind of like this. And uh, we were worshiping. And I looked around and I thought, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? Because there are more and more people coming all the time and we don't have room. And there was nothing opening up. And God just spoke to me and said, test me. Very clearly. Then two more times that day, he said, test me. And you know what he was saying? All he was saying was, just step out. You know, like Bartimaeus, this blind guy lying alongside the road, crying out, Jesus, have mercy on me. They come to Bartimaeus and they say, he hears you. Take heart, get up. And Bartimaeus had to get up. It's like stepping into the shower. He had to get up. And what God was saying was, test me. It's kind of like, all right, how, how's the water? What do you do? You, you test it. You put your foot in it and think, oh, that, that feels pretty good. I'm going to jump in. And so uh, that, that's how this whole building came about. But I believe that that word that he gave me, test me, is as a prophetic word extends to everyone here. I'm speaking it out today, and you can grab hold of it and claim it for yourself. That I, I'm going to test him. Not test in the sense, you understand what I'm saying. It's not like a negative type of a test. It's like, check this out. I'm going to do it. And here's the thing. Um, Here it is. I believe that what God's calling us to and inviting us to is to each of us personally increase our giving by 3% for three months. Okay, 3% for three months. And I believe that's a call to each one of us. And so that means, let's just say, let's just say I'm not giving, or I'm giving, you know, maybe I'm, you know, find $10 in my wallet, I give that, or $20 in my wallet, I give that. Let's say, what that means is I'm going to look at my income, and I'm going to say, okay, what do I make? Well, I make $50,000 a year. What is 3% of 50000 Any math wizards here? 3% of 50000 Okay, that's what I'm going to give. All right, I'm increasing my giving by 3%. Let's say I'm someone, uh, you know, calculate what percentage you're giving and then say, well, okay, I'm going to increase that by 3% for these three months. Some of us are giving 10% or more than that. And, uh, you know, actually someone who's given up in the range of 13, 14, 15%, I don't know what to say to you. If, I know you get in on this too if if. I mean, if, if you're doing okay with 14 or 15%, then stretch yourself and be part of this. But especially those of us that are, haven't started giving yet or are somewhere in, that, in, a, in a range of giving, but it's not planned, it's not, we're not strategizing it, we're not making it a priority. I think God's just offering it to you. He's just saying, look, do this as an act of worship to me. Do this because I'm worthy. And you're gonna, your eyes are going to open up. Do this for those reasons, and you're going to see more of heaven. You're going to see more of Jesus. You're going to become more like Jesus. Why 3%? Well, 3% is enough that you'll miss it. Okay, 10% is kind of like what the Bible talks about in different places, but move in that direction. 3% is a step. It's, it's enough that you're going to miss it. Um, why three months? Well, three months is long enough to begin to develop some new habit patterns for one thing and to also it's long enough to actually see God do something. Sometimes we, we step into a new level of obedience 
And we're in and out before there's even a chance for God to do anything because, well, okay, I, I obeyed him for a week and I didn't see a miracle, so I'm going to quit. But um, uh, it gives us long enough to, to really see God work. And then why are we calling it? What we're calling it is the three-by-three three declaration. So let's pass those out at this point, okay? And uh, you'll get one of these in just a second. Okay, three by three, three percent for three months, all right? Three percent for three months. At the end of three months, we'll evaluate it. We'll talk about it. We'll, we'll, we'll ask for stories. What happened? How did God work? How's it going for you? But three percent for three months. And it's a declaration. It's a statement. We've been making the verbal declarations all along. Now it's time that we actually do what Bartimaeus did. It's time we do what that woman did in the crowd who reached out and touched the cloak of Jesus, had to fight through that crowd to get to him, and she did it. She reached out. Now it's time for us to take action, to take risk. There's, there's something so exciting about risking. Anybody here believe that? Man, have you ever taken a risk? Anybody here ever taken a risk? Man, it, it, it lights life up. It's exciting, just in a human sense it's exciting, but this is going to be exciting because we are entering into something Jesus is calling us to, and it's going to raise the faith level of the whole church. We're going to see God working all across our church in people's lives and in in many different situations. God's going to be doing some awesome stuff through this. So uh, with the little paper we gave you, First notice that on the left-hand side, that's your personal copy, and on the right-hand side, we're going to ask uh, for you to bring these back next week and the week after that. And those two weekends, we'll be receiving these back. And the reason for that is, just like in Hezekiah's day, we want to be able to say, look, look what God's done. We want to rejoice together. So whatever decision you make, we ask you to share it with us so we can all rejoice together. You can see there are a couple of verses then with a desire to worship the Lord in both word and action. We commit for the next three months to increase our giving by 3% of our income. Not 3% of what I'm already giving, but 3% of my income, okay? And or increase my our giving by whatever percentage of our income. Some people might want to jump straight to 10%, start tithing or or might, uh, maybe somebody just feels compelled to do 2%. We're, you know, that's okay too, but I believe the call from God is 3%. Uh, I, we also intend to give this first as the top priority, to give it regularly. You know, a lot of us will be out of town this summer, and if I miss a month, I mean, for my own personal giving, if I'm out of town for a couple of weeks, I still give because it's worship, because I want to. Because it honors Jesus and he's worthy of it. Uh, Give joyfully. Give sacrificially. And I'll give at my church. Where I, uh, my regular place of worship with God's people. So, hope this all makes sense. And uh, we will uh, have a special time in the service next weekend to receive these. And in the following weekend to receive these back, okay? All right. So, let's stand. Worship team's going to come. We're going to worship. I know we're going long. If you have children, you want to go get them and bring them in for worship, uh, that you know, would be a good idea.
or acceptable idea anyway would be good. But please come back and worship with us. What we're going to do is read this uh, declaration from uh, the book of Revelation. And I'm going to read the introduction to it, then we'll read these verses all together, okay? So here we go. This is John. He said, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. 